0: The, um, as I said several weeks ago, uh, I will throughout the summer and probably into the fall be, uh, whenever I'm preaching here, and I'll be here three out of four weeks or so, but uh, I, I will be talking on topics surrounding the issue of discipleship, uh, kingdom training. What we said two weeks ago was that um, what's going on in this world essentially is this. Two things are, are happening. One, people are deciding whether they'll be born into the kingdom of God or outside the kingdom of God. What we commonly refer to as heaven and hell. This is what this world's about. It's a probationary epic. It's like the gestation period of reality. Uh, We're we're, we're kind of in a prelude to, to, to the real world. This really isn't the real world yet. The real world will happen when the kingdom of God comes. And then creation will be what creation was always intended to be. And the question that every person decides in their heart of hearts is... Will you be born in that kingdom or outside that kingdom? Which is really the question, is your heart open to God or closed to God? Are you living for God or are you living for yourself? That's what it comes out to to mean. And everything about that kingdom, it will be uh, in congruity with God. Nothing goes into the kingdom that does not have kingdom character in, in it. And the only way to get that character is by putting your trust in Jesus Christ. We decide that in this life, in this probationary period. What happens in this gestation period determines what happens when we are birthed into that world. The second thing that's happening right here in, this, in world history is, in this epoch that we're in right now, is that God is training those who have said yes to him. He's training them and equipping them and refining them to play a role in that kingdom. Heaven is not sitting on the clouds with a harp, doing nothing, being bored stiff, maybe singing a religious song now and then. The kingdom of God will be a perfect version of this world. In fact, the Bible says in Revelations 5, 10, that we will reign with him on this earth. God's goal for humanity has always been for humanity to be the means by which he carries out his will on earth as it is in heaven. Uh, The conduits of his love being spread on this planet. We're to be co-rainers, administrators, viceroys, if you will, of God on this earth. We have a job to do. And the kingdom of God will be that time when humanity has finally attained that goal. And it's happening through the building of the kingdom of God right now. We're moving forward to that goal. And at that time, as I said, everything that is inconsistent with God's perfect uh, love and holiness will be done away with. And only that which is consistent will remain. And then the world will be as the world was intended to be. We will participate in the love and the joy and the peace and the ecstasy of the triune God, dancing with the triune God throughout eternity. He'll wipe away every tear from our eye. There'll be no more heartaches. There'll be no more sorrow. There'll be no more death. There'll be no more cancer. Praise God. But we will have a job to do as we carry it out with joy. And the job will be reigning with Christ upon this earth. We're not giving many details about it, but we know that that's our job. Now is the time we're preparing for that. We can speculate about whether more preparation goes on in the next life, but what we do know for sure is that this is the period of time that God tells us where he refines us, he equips us. He's training us to be rulers in the world to come. And we are to frame every uh, event in our life in that context. We are disciples in training. Paul says that we are to be more intentional about the training that we're a part of than an athlete who's training for the Olympics. As an athlete disciplines themselves and brings their body under self-control and works to, to you know, be able to run fast and with a lot of endurance, so also, and even more so, the believers should see every day of their life and every moment in every day as an opportunity to be further trained, to, to have their character refined, to grow in conformity with Jesus Christ. A lot of people think that this life is just sort of you believe in Jesus and wait till you die and then you go to heaven. It doesn't really have much purpose. But what the the, the biblical picture gives us is this. This life is very, very important. It's our gestation period. It's our training period. And here's where we refine ourselves uh, through the grace of God to look like Jesus so that we're equipped to go into that kingdom. When you frame all of life like that, it changes everything. Paul says in Romans 8, 28, that in all things, God's working together or working with us for the good of those who love the Lord and are called according to his purpose. God doesn't cause all things. That would make him the author of evil. A lot of things happen because of our own bad choices or the choices of other people or even the choices of spirits. We're in a virtual war zone and a lot happens to people that's not of God's will at all. But God is so smart that he'll take everything that happens with us, however bad it may be. And even though he didn't will it, now that it's here, he says, okay, I can use this. I can build patience with this. I can build, uh, you know, endurance with this. I can expand this person's capacity to love through this circumstance. That's the the promise of God. He can bring a purpose to everything that happens. It's not his purpose that makes everything happen, but now that it's going to happen, he brings a purpose to it. And we are to frame everything in our life as a, in terms of training. And when you do that, it changes everything. If you frame things in terms of this world, in terms of getting as much joy here and now, this is the only life you have, that's the secular, carnal, materialistic way of looking at things, then you will run from inconvenient circumstances very fast. You'll bail on the marriage as soon as you have problems. You'll, you'll, you'll stay longer at work if the kids are causing you, causing you problems. Uh, you know, you, we get into all sorts of dysfunctional uh, ways of dealing with the issues because we don't want to face them head on. It's because we're trying to grab as much uh, convenience and comfort and happiness right here and right now. But if you frame things in terms of kingdom training, that's what you are. You're an apprentice of Jesus Christ. You're being trained for the kingdom. You are a disciple, the Bible says. If you frame it like that, well, then you stick in there. And you're saying, God, what can I learn from this situation? What can you teach me in this situation? How can you alter me in this situation? And that even brings a kind of a peace and maybe even a kind of a joy to the things that you're going through. Your marriage is a wonderful opportunity to grow. Your kids... Great opportunity to grow. A neighbor of yours, what an opportunity to grow. In-laws, marvelous opportunity to grow. Health problems, opportunity to grow, to learn patience. Uh, financial issues, what an opportunity for God to teach you wisdom. I mean, it's, it's, it's a, life is a laboratory of kingdom training. That's what it's about. And we're to frame it in that, uh, that context. Now, what I want to talk about today now that I'm 10 minutes into the message, is I, I, the 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 if, the texture, if you will, or the the nature, the flavor of this kingdom training. I'm laying some foundational things here. Later on, I'll get into more specifics about discipleship. But this is kind of laying foundational things here about the kingdom training that we're a part of. And more specifically, I want to this morning talk about two different competing models of what it is to be trained in the kingdom. There's, first of all, what I'll call the legal religious model. It's prevalent uh, all over the place, has been throughout history. The, the legal religious model of kingdom training versus what I'll call the love relational model of kingdom training. Two very different ways of looking at, at things. The verse I want to read is, is, is Galatians chapter 4. It really fits in perfectly with the verse that Tirza read uh, at the end of worship. When Paul says, I pray that you could understand the height and and the depth and the width, the breadth of the love of Jesus Christ so that you may be filled, so you may be filled with the full measure of God. Okay? Powerful. God's goal is to have us filled to the full measure with God. This verse complements that. Paul says this. My little children, he says to the Galatians, for whom I am again in the pain of childbirth, until Christ is formed in you. I'm in the pain of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. I wish I were present with you now. I wish we could talk face to face, he's saying, and could change my tone because he's really been angry up to this point. He says, for I am perplexed about you. I am perplexed about you. I'll break that apart a little bit more uh, later on, but let me just kind of lay the context here. The Galatians uh, were a, a group of believers that Paul had uh, evangelized several years earlier. There was a, a little body. They had been growing well. Uh, they were saved by grace. They were walking in grace. Uh, they were trusting God to bring about change in their life, and they were seeing some results of that, and they were seeing the power of God being demonstrated in their midst, and things were really going well. And that's why Paul was so puzzled by the fact that they bought into a lie when some false preachers bought, brought them a lie. The lie was this. Some people came and taught them that while it's good to start with grace, yes, you need to start there. If you're going to grow in the Lord and if you're going to be complete in the Lord and if you're really going to impress God and, and, and have God, God's favor in your life, you need to submit to circumcision. Circumcision was the Old Testament sign of the covenant, uh, and it was required of every Jew. And so uh, here, these people were saying that whether you're Jewish or not, you know, Paul doesn't care whether you're circumcised or not. I mean, that's just kind of a cultural, personal thing. But uh, uh, he got really mad when they said it's a religious thing. It's, it's the thing that God's looking for, which is really the sign that you've arrived. Now you're complete. Whether you're Jew or Gentile, you need to be circumcised. They, they wanted to take that much of the law... And uh, and and uh uh have all believers in the New Testament subject to it. And Paul is beside himself. He is livid. This is the most angry letter in the New Testament. He just he can hardly contain himself. At least in fact in, in one verse it seems like he doesn't contain himself. In in chapter five of, of the book of Galatians, he says, These people that are telling you to to get circumcised, I wish they'd castrate themselves. Uh and he was inspired by the Holy Spirit when he said that, too. So it shows you that God's got a little bit of a sarcastic sense of humor. He's saying, just you go ahead, go all the way with it if, if, if it's that important. I mean, he's really angry. And the question we've got to ask is, why? What is, you know, what's the big deal? Same thing with Jesus. When he's ministering to the prostitutes, he's compassionate. The tax collectors, he's compassionate. The run-of-the-mill sinners, he's compassionate. You know, people who are ripping off other people, he's compassionate towards them. But when he confronts the Pharisees who are getting life from all the do's and the don'ts that they think they adhere to, he's he's livid. I mean, he loves them. He cares about them, but he's in their face. You brought a vipers, you serpents, you whited sepulchers, your gravestones. The prostitutes are going to go into heaven before you. What's with this? These are good, decent, upstanding citizens. I'm sure the Galatians were good, upstanding, decent citizens. They look good on the outside. What is the big deal? We evangelicals get a lot, get mad at a lot of things, more things than I think we should get mad at, but we get ticked off at different things. But I don't think we usually get ticked off at this. A person's getting life because of their baptism, or a person's getting life because they don't go to our movies, or a person's getting life. And we might think, well, okay, they're a little bit, you know, hyper intense, but it's not that big of a deal. And yet when Paul and Jesus are talking about this, you think this is the worst heresy on the planet. Because for Paul and Jesus, it is the worst heresy on the the planet. And the question is, why? And the answer is because this changes everything. It changes everything. And as we're going to be intentional about discipleship and training and being an apprentice of Jesus Christ, we need to know about the everything that it changes. Here is the deal. When you buy into this idea that circumcision improves your standing with God, that God's really looking for circumcision, there's an external behavior that gets you okay with God. The minute you do that, God becomes a sort of cosmic behavioralist who's more concerned with behavior than people. Because if people are associated with the right behavior, you're in. But if people are associated with the wrong behavior, you're out. Which tells you that what God really loves is behavior, not people. He's a cosmic behaviorist. He becomes sort of a lawyer, the policeman that's, that's always kind of inspecting the behavior uh, th- that, that is there. The relationship with God is changed from this one of unconditional, passionate love to sort of an employer relationship, a quid pro quo legal uh, relationship. That's why I call it a legal religious model of God and model of the Christian life. Now, now there's sort of this, this contract where God does some things and you do some things and you work out a bargain together, but it changes everything. And the many you... Except that model of God, it changes your view of yourself. Because now your worth before God depends on whether or not you're circumcised. And so what gives you value is the fact that you're circumcised where they're not circumcised, or you do these things when they do those things, or or what have you. Your worth in your identity is no longer this unconditional thing you get from, from Jesus Christ for free. Now it's something you earn with your behavior. Your identity is found in your behavior, and the minute you buy into that, you're going to be involved in all sorts of judgments. Because now, because behavior is so important, you become a professional assessor at behavior. A lot of Christians are. They they see people in terms of their behavior, in terms of their appearance, what they're doing right and what they're doing wrong. They assess themselves in terms of what they're doing right and what they're doing wrong. They assess other people in terms of what they're doing right and what they're doing wrong, and they're all matted up in judgments. And the minute you do that, you can no longer love people unconditionally for free, which is a central command that we're given uh, throughout the entire Bible. The minute you do that, you're involved in religious idolatry because you're getting life from the fact that, that you don't smoke, but they do, and you go to church, but they don't, and you're not a prostitute, but she is, and you don't do drugs, but they do, and, 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 and you're circumcised, but they're not. You're getting life from that instead of getting it for free from God's grace. And in fact, when you believe in this whole thing, now you are tapping into the central sin of humanity. What was the thing that got us involved in this mess in the first place? It was eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And we talked about that all last year. You're getting life, your worth, your value, your self-esteem. You're doing okay because of the good that you're eating off of your own goodness and the good that you do and the evil that you avoid. And you're you're, you're seeing how other people don't don't do the good that you do and do the evil that you don't do. and, and, And you're getting life from that. And there is involved in all of this no transformation at all. In fact, in the name of God, you're propagating the fall rather than the deliverance from the fall. The fall is eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And now you're the expert at it. That's why Jesus had to confront the Pharisees the way he did. That's why Paul is so livid. At the, at the heresy that the Galatians have bought into. And there's no transformation, no real, inner, true transformation going on in a person's life when they're involved in this. They, you will look good on the outside because you're doing all the right behavior. You'll look polished, clean, but the inside, like Jesus said, the inside is, is, is all full of fungus. And well, He doesn't say that specifically, but that's my paraphrase. Uh, the inside is just... That's why you're like a tombstone, so polished on the outside, but dead on the inside. It's all exterior. There's no real transformation there in this legal, religious version of of, uh, your model of God and of of the Christian life. People who are involved in this uh, legal, religious model of God, they invariably think that they're the only ones who are taking sin seriously. We crack down on sin in your life. Have you got sin in your life, son? We're going to crack down on it. We're going to crack down on it. And they police it. And, and, and we're the only. And those love preachers with all that love stuff, well, they're the kind of mamsy-pamsy kind of, you know, light, uh, uh, you know, it's Christianity light. That's the puff and stuff religion. They don't take sin seriously. And it's true that we probably don't take sin seriously. But these folks think that they're the only ones who take sin seriously. And I want to submit to you that there's no view on the planet that takes sin less seriously than the religious legal model. Because, see, when you're involved in this religious legal model, and you're getting life from the good that you think you do and the evil that you don't do, invariably, inevitably, because it's a source of life for you, you bend your criteria for what counts as sin or not. You bend it to serve yourself, because you're feeding, you're feeding yourself from it. No one eats from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in an objective way. You always do it in a way that serves yourself. So your sins you don't even see, but other people's sins, man, you see them all over the place. You are, as Jesus said, looking around for specks in people's eyes, while you got two by four sticking out of your own eyes. The Pharisees were so good at, at, you know, at tithing mint and cumin and, and doing all the, the the rituals and doing the circumcision, doing all that kind of stuff. But Jesus said, you miss... You miss the weightier matters like love and like justice. You don't even notice the fact that you're totally devoid of love, and that's the center of the center. That's the most important thing to get. We're always selective. There's religious sanctioned sins that we don't really think are that important. No one goes on a crusade to get rid of gossip in the church and, and to get rid of self-righteousness and because people aren't loving enough or caring about justice enough or being greedy. But we crowd go on crusades for other things, because oh, those are the real bad sins. Who said? You said. And the reason you said it is because you're feeding yourself. You're feeling righteous because you don't do those sins. It's a it's a it's a selective view of uh, of sin. It's not taking sin seriously at all. It's also a shallow way of treating sin. It's shallow because because they're feeding off it. What constitutes having sin is what you can notice. What good is it to know about it to know about a sin that you can't even prove, that you can't even see, that you can't, you can't feed off of it unless you can see it. So the real bad sins are the ones that you can observe. You see, you can spot them. Now everyone's kind of vigilant looking around. Okay, who's got him? Who, who's got that sin? So sin is defined externally in terms of behavior. Behavior becomes all important. Why? Because God's a cosmic behavioralist, and we're trying to impress him with our behavior. I met a guy some years ago when we were at Harding, actually, um, who was telling me that he believed that every time you sinned, you lost your salvation. So you needed to get resaved saved after every time. And I said, I really hope that your relationship with your wife isn't done on that basis, uh, because you'll be getting divorced and remarried quite frequently. But uh, uh, in other words, I hope you guys are more gracious to yourself than your view of God is towards you. And if if this is the grace version of who God is, I I don't even want to hear about the works version. (laughs) Okay, but then he, he said, I, I said, you must be getting saved and unsaved quite often. Because I believe that actually when I, the first version of Christianity I was a part of, they, they, that's what they taught. And I was a yo-yo in the kingdom. Yeah, you know, I'm saved and lost. I'm saved and lost. I'm saved and lost. I'm saved and lost. I said, so you must, you know, be, be going in and out quite a bit. And he goes, oh, when I first started, of course I was. Uh, but I haven't sinned in 13 years. Here's Here's to you, lad. Yeah, you know, that that was my response. Uh, Thirteen years. But I wanted to help the guy, so I said, really? Really? (laughs) Okay, I I said, you know, I don't think I've ever met someone who claimed that, so I'm curious. Now, the Bible says in in Matthew 12 that uh, any idle word that you shall speak, you're going to give account of it on the day of judgment. Every idle word. And looked up the word in Greek and it means idle. Uh, every unprofitable, every useless. So I said, You haven't spoken a useless, unprofitable word in 13 years. That's impressive. But now, what comes out of a person really isn't what's important, Jesus said. That's not what defiles you. It's what's on the inside. Thoughts are more important than behavior or, 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 or words because everything we say and everything we do is just a reflection of what we think. So Jesus was always more in, interested in what goes on in your mind. So you haven't thought a useless thought, a frivolous thought, an unproductive thought in 13 years. In fact, you haven't thought anything other than perfect God-glorifying thoughts in 13 years. You haven't lusted in your heart in 13 years. You haven't even thought you fool, you idiot, you cut me off. You never thought anything other than perfectly loving thoughts towards everybody in 13 years. There hasn't been a moment where you could think a loving thought that you didn't think a loving thought. You have not sinned by omission. You've, you've seized every opportunity to think loving thoughts consistently for 13 years, unbroken. You have been in thought, word, feeling, and deed at nothing but uh, a God-glorifying, moment-by-moment, unbroken, uninterrupted uh, example of Jesus Christ. In fact, th- between, in the last 13 years, the difference between you and Jesus Christ is nothing. Have I got this right? <laughs> and he said, okay, now you're getting sarcastic. <laughs> and see, the sad thing is that I wasn't. And I see, if, 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 the sad thing is, see, is that, that this is what sin is. You want to take sin seriously? Let's take sin seriously. And we're supposed to take sin seriously. Uh, but here's what it means to take sin seriously. You don't get selective with it, just deciding that certain sins you're going to go after so you feel righteous. No, let's deal with, if you're going to deal with sin, sin is missing the mark. Missing the mark in thought, in feeling, in word, in deed. It's all missing the mark. It all falls short of the glory of God. And unless God is outrageously gracious, we're all going to hell. That's taking sin seriously. You know, let's look at it objectively, all right? Uh, and and, and uh, uh, you know, analyze it for, for what it is. It means that you don't deal with it in a shallow way. You're not selective and you're not shallow. You don't define it in terms of externals. In fact, the most important sin is the stuff that no one sees. It's what goes on in the inner thoughts and the inner hearts, the inner character of a person. It's what you do when, when, when no one is looking. That's what sin's really about. And so if you take sin seriously, you immediately come to the realization that if, if this legal religious version is true, we're all, we're all in, in, in serious shape. Yeah, they have homosexual lust, but you have heterosexual lust. You're in the same boat. They They steal, but you've thought about stealing, you've coveted in your heart, you're in the same boat. They hit someone, but you hit people with your gossip, you're in the same boat. They maybe, you know, say it out loud, but you think in your braid, you're all in the same boat. They maybe don't go to church, but you don't pray enough, you're all in the same boat. Uh, to take sin seriously means you realize immediately that there's nobody who can stand over somebody else looking for a speck, while well, you got two by fours out of your, coming out of your, your eyes. No one can throw the first stone where all the playing field is leveled because of the universality of sin. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. That's taking sin seriously. Amen. And so it's to realize that you can't do it on your own. We're all in and of ourselves lost. So have a good day, all right? (laughs) Thankfully, we're not in this alone. It's not in and of ourselves. Thankfully, the religious legal model is, is is not true. The good news... And the word gospel, by the way, in Greek, euangelion, it means good news. And one way you can tell whether you're preaching the gospel is that it's good. It's good news. It's amazing to me what goes out in the name of good news. It sounds very bad news to me. The good news is this, that though, in fact, we, are, we have to throw ourselves at the mercy of God's court, uh, that we have no place to, to, uh, to plead on our own. Even our righteousness is as filthy rags. Uh, just vile rags. Uh, it's tainted with sin all the way down. Despite our sin, the good news is that God hasn't given up on us. The good news is that despite our sin, God continues to love us. In fact, the good news is that God has had throughout history and has this very moment a passionate, pulsating heart for you. He is not madly in love with you. The good news is that while we were yet sinners, Jesus Christ died for us. Praise God praise God. The good news is that God in his love and God in his creativity found a way to reconcile us to himself despite our sin. That's good news. That's very good news. And so the good news is that you, even though you miss the mark frequently, even though you are a sinner, the good news is that you can be made a child of God, an adorable child of God, a co-worker of God, a servant of God, the bride of Jesus Christ, robed in his righteousness, destined for eternal heaven, sitting with him in heavenly places, blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus. That is good news. I can live with that news. I like that news. The first step to really growing in Christ is to admit that you can't do it on your own. The thing that was keeping the, the Galatians from growing as they were supposed to grow was that now they accepted this thing that, 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 that uh, there's hoops they, they can jump through on their own that's going to get God to up the ante on how much he likes them. Admit that you don't do that. And now you're in a position to grow. That brings us to the verse that we read this morning. Paul says, I pray that Christ may be formed in you. Not that you will form Christ in yourself through your hard work, but that Christ will be formed in you. It's it's, it's the same thing he's saying uh, in in the Ephesians passage that tears are red. He prays that we would uh, be filled with the full measure of God. And what it means to be filled to the full measure, filled to the full measure, you'll be, just be you'll be God-packed. What it means is that now you're increasingly understanding the height and the depth and the depth and the love and the width, the width, and the breadth of the love of Jesus Christ, which passes understanding. That you'll note this, you'll know what cannot be known. You experience it, but you can't fathom it. It's incomprehensible. And as you grow in that, Christ is being formed in you. Christ is growing in you. The metaphor Paul uses is bizarre. Most of the time, the metaphors people remember are the bizarre ones. That's why I use bizarre metaphors. Uh, You remember them. Uh, Paul, Paul says, I'm going through labor pains for you. Why? So that Christ will be formed in you. And he's saying, I, I am in labor to, like, to, to see you get pregnant. The reality is this, that when you become a believer, in a very real sense, you're pregnant. <laughs> Guys, you're pregnant. <laughs> um, you, there is, there is, there's a life planted in you. His name is Jesus Christ. The kingdom is planted there. The dome in which God is king gets planted in your innermost being. And now that life wants to grow. It's, it's the parallels with the Virgin Mary, that life wants to grow and begin to take up more and more space, begin to f- take his character and infuse it into your character. Uh, it wants to just kind of like begin to expand, to take over your thoughts, to take over your feelings, to take over your behavior. In other words, genuine spiritual growth isn't a matter of doing 19 things and avoiding 19,000 things in order to get some righteous life in you. Rather, genuine transformation is a, is a process of letting the life that is already there come out of you. You see how that is? The life wants to grow. It's just like with a real pre- regular pregnancy. If you're eating right, if that child is growing, it takes up more and more space. You begin to show it, okay? People can see. Yeah, you're pregnant, aren't you? Although you want to make sure that they're pregnant before you ask them that question. Um, I've learned. Um, but... Uh, <laughs> You know, it shows. And the child there starts to stretch. It says, I want more of you. I want more space. You know, my, my, my wife, when she was pregnant with my first child, man, she was pregnant. She was. I mean, there's pregnant, and then there's pregnant. She was pregnant. And it was just sick and straight. It was huge. And, and and Danae, she'd be walking down the street, you know, like this, and all of a sudden, you see this bump right on the, you know, and it would go, Danae was pushing her foot out like this. This got to stretch those legs. And all of a sudden, there'd be a wham. She was practicing kung fu in the womb. You know, it was just like, you know, and stretching. I, got, I need more room. I need more room, you know. And Shelly would just be walking down the street like this. Well, Paul's praying that Jesus does that to us. Let me into that brain. I want some more of those thoughts. Let me into that character. Let me into your feelings. Let me into those wombs. I I need some space to grow here. There's an alien force in you, and he's taking over. (laughs) All right? His name is Jesus Christ. But that's good news. The way God transforms us is from the inside out. Now, see, the religious legal model of transformation, it's kind of like what, what, what was going on with the Galatians, what was going on with the Pharisees, and what's going on in Christendom all over the place, is that people are trying to get pregnant by looking pregnant. See, if I just do these things and don't do these things, then I'll be righteous. But genuine growth means it's about having the righteousness to start with, and that's why you increasingly do these things and don't do those things. But everything hangs upon whether or not you let the engine carry the caboose or the caboose carry the engine. The inside comes first. You can't get pregnant by trying to look pregnant. I read a story of a girl who tried that, honestly. She got involved in this theology that says that if you just believe it enough and confess it enough, that you'll be healthy, wealthy, and prosperous. Some of you have heard about this, this doctrine that's out there, and you know, God owes it to you, so you just got to claim it. Name it and claim it, it's sometimes called. Well, she got married and she wanted kids, and turns out the doctor said your ovaries are uh, damaged or something, so she couldn't have any kids. Well, she wasn't going to receive that. So she started confessing that her ovaries were working fine. And then she started confessing that she was pregnant. And she started telling people, I'm pregnant. And they're like, oh, wonderful, wonderful. She started wearing maternity clothes. She started sticking her stomach out and walking like she was pregnant. Uh, she, I'm told, actually started experiencing morning sickness. I mean, this poor lady really wanted to have this child. For five years she did this. But see, I'm sorry, man, but it doesn't work this way. Uh, There's only one way to get pregnant. I don't need to tell you guys about this, I hope. Uh, But it's not going to be by trying to act like you're pregnant. In fact, on a spiritual level, the only way to get pregnant with Jesus Christ is to have this supernatural seed planted in you. The Bible says in first Peter, we are, we are born, we bear an imperishable seed, praise God, uh, He comes and supernaturally takes residence in your life. The kingdom starts small, but that child begins to grow, and he wants to take over more and more of your being and, and as that happens, it, it will show you will show there'll be more righteousness there you 'll be walking more in conformity with Jesus Christ, but you don 't get it by trying to act in conformity with Jesus Christ when you 're not, you get it by having Christ formed in you, and then it, it, it increasingly shows in every situation of your life you need to know that there is a, a life in you, the life of Jesus Christ, the spirit of Jesus Christ, who's always prompting you to, to let him grow, to let him move you and form his character into your character. That's what it means. It's about character formation. God's not interested in how big your belly is. He wants to know what's really going on in the womb, what's going on on the inside. The inside is about your character. It's about who you really are. It's about your innermost being. One one person defined character as uh, who you are when no one is looking. It's the you minus all the external pressures and all the external motivations and all that other kind of stuff. We can have a million reasons for what we do. The question is, what do you do when there are no external reasons for doing it? The famous Greek philosopher Plato in his book, The Republic, told a tale of of a a guy named Gyges. G-Y-G-E-S who was a good, moral, upstanding citizen, but he found a ring. It was a magical ring. He put it on his finger, and he found that when he turned it, he turned invisible. And as that happened, he, at first it was just sort of a cool trick, but after a while he discovered there are things you can do when you're invisible that you can never do while you're visible. And they weren't good things. And he gradually became more and more corrupt until in the end, he seduced the queen, killed the king, and took over the kingdom. And the point of the tale is this. You never know what a person's really like till they're invisible. And sometimes it's not pretty. What God is most concerned with, the external behavior thing, is so pathetically shallow. That's at most a symptom of, of, of what is the important thing, and that is, who are you really in the core of your being? Who are you in the womb, if I can continue to use the, 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 this uh, the metaphor. God wants a bride who, who just isn't trying to look pregnant. He wants a bride who really is pregnant, being filled to the full measure of, of Jesus Christ, where there's a life that is growing on the inside. And what you need to know is that Every moment of your life, that life is, every moment, every situation that you're in, that life is there, moving you in the direction of the kingdom, trying to refine your character for the kingdom, trying to take off from you the things that are not consistent with that kingdom. There's a f- force in you that is saying, choose love as opposed to apathy, choose kindness over cruelty. There's a force in you. And your job is to yield to that. Let that grow. Let that grow. It's the opposite of trying to crank it out on your own. You just yield, surrender to the life of Christ who's in you. Saying, choose honesty over dishonesty. Walk with integrity. Value your body. Don't go giving yourself away cheaply. Listen to that voice. He's in you saying, let me take my character and infuse it on you. Enter into worship with passion. Don't just sing songs. The Spirit of God is pushing you in that direction. Notice your wife. Notice your husband. Notice your kids. Spend time with them. Don't just go your own way. Learn to live generously, not miserly and, 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 and greedy. And on and on, the character of, of Christ. He's saying, give me some space here. Give me some space here. I want to, uh, that thought, let's take that one captive to Christ. Uh, these feelings. Let's, uh, and our job is just to yield. It's just to yield. Do we continue to, to fall short of the glory of God? The answer is yes. Even we, we resist that forming like the Galatians were doing. We want to do it on our own, or we just don't want to do it at all. But see, if you have this, A love relational model of transformation. The way you you understand sin is going to be very different than the legal religious model. Sin is missing the mark, hamartia in Greek. Uh, it, It literally means missing the mark. It's a term that's taken out of archery. If you hit the bullseye, you haven't sinned. If you hit anywhere else, you have sinned. There's 20 trillion ways to sin. There's only one way not to sin, and that's hitting the bullseye. The bullseye is God's love. It's the glory of God. That's why Paul says all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The arrow doesn't make it there. It goes wide. It goes short. It goes too high or whatever. But you're not hitting the bullseye. The bullseye is God's perfect love coming to you, flowing through you. The bullseye is perfect conformity, perfect congruity, perfect harmony with the God of outrageous love. So that you are now in a perfect way, his hands, his feet, his expression, and that's God's goal for human beings is to be his hands, his feet, his expression here on earth as it is in heaven. That's hitting the bullseye. That's why Jesus said, and James said, and Paul said, that if you love, you fulfill all the law because you hit the bullseye. That's why Paul said, if you don't love, it doesn't matter what else you do. It's worthless because you aren't hitting the bullseye. The bullseye is God's perfect love. Now, if you have a if you have a, legal relation, a legal religious model of God, the picture you get sort of is this. I'm over here, and I got the bow, and I got the arrow, and, I, and there's the target, and I, I got to hit the bullseye. And I'm not very good at shooting this at all. And there's a sergeant over there, and he's looking at me very intensely. And the more I miss, the more angry he gets. He tells me where I'm supposed to hit. He says, make sure you don't hit anywhere else. He specifies all the areas I'm not supposed to hit. So now I'm kind of distracted looking at those areas I'm not supposed to hit. And whenever I miss, he gets angry. He tells me what the comp- consequences are he's coming up into my face he's hollering at me saying what's wrong with you i said hit hit it this way you know you're supposed to hold the bow this way you're supposed to i'll tell you how to do it you you pull it back you got to release it just like this and i have no idea what goes on when you shoot a bow and arrow but whatever they are he tells you to do those things but see the the more you do and the more you miss the more angry he gets and i submit to you the less effective you are at hitting that bullseye paul said that the law increases sin why Romans 7, the law increases sin. The law is good and holy, he says, but it was given to aggravate, to increase sin. What does that mean? And that's how it drives us to Christ. Well, the reason is because the law tells you what you're supposed to do, tells you what the consequences are, are for not doing it, but doesn't help you do it at all. And in fact, because the, conse- the stakes are so high, it just gets you, it gets you uh, hyper self-conscious, all for sorts of judgments and assessments, getting down on yourself and whatnot, and you become less effective at doing that. It's like trying to play a piano recital, concentrating on all the keys you're not supposed to hit. Let's think about that. How good would that recital be? I remember doing a drum solo one time, and all of a sudden I became kind of nervous thinking about, what exact, how am I doing this? <laughs> Man, it's not the thing to think about at that time. You've got to let it flow. It's like, okay, now I'm supposed to hit this. Too much thought destroys the whole thing. My sister one time was learning how to uh, ski. We all, as kids, would go out skiing on the St. Croix. We had a boat. and uh, My poor sister never learned how to ski. And the reason is because when we went out today, we're all supposed to learn. We got the boat. We're going to learn to ski now. My brother got up the first time because he was a super jock and always did things the best the first time. I took about four or five times, but that was still, still acceptable. But my little sister, uh, you know, after seven times trying, she still was falling. She, she was getting a little better, but she was falling. And my dad never won an award for patience. He, uh, he started getting mad. And so he starts hollering out orders. You're supposed to keep your knees straight. And then later on, you're supposed to bend your knees a little bit. You know, lean forward, not that forward. You got to lean backward, not that backward. You know, got to hold it this way. You got to do this. You got to do the other thing. And my poor sister, she's getting more and more angry. She'd fall again. Oh, she, and my dad would swear up a storm. He was always good at that. And so she's getting more and more nervous. And the more nervous she got, the more she'd fall. Until finally she says, forget it. Forget it. I'm done. I can't. And she never has learned how to ski. That's what the law does. tells you what you're supposed to do and what the consequences are, but it doesn't empower you. The love relationship model of archery I submit to you is very different. Because the expert marks, marksman who's never missed at all, he's passionately in love with you. And what's already established is however good or bad you are at this, he died for you and you are his kid. And it's out of that love that you already have that he's going to now improve your ability to shoot. He wants you to hit the bullseye, and, and someday you will. But he doesn't leverage that on his relationship. The relationship comes first, and now out of that you learn how to, 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 to shoot well. It's like a father and a child. Uh, he's teaching her how to shoot. And see, he comes, he's in us, and we're in him. It's not a distance thing. He's teaching us how to shoot from the inside, from the inside of a hug, if you will. And so he puts his hand over your hand, says, hold hold the bow just like this. And then he guides your hand as he pulls it back. And says, okay, now you release it just like this. You see, he's actually shooting through you. He's shooting through you. And your job is to let him do that. The more you try to do it on your own, the less competent you're going to be at this. It's a matter of surrendering to him. Now, do you still miss the mark? Yes, you do. Yes, you do. But it's crucial that you remember who the expert marksman is when you do that. You are his child and he desperately loves you. He's not the military sergeant. My sister drew this picture two nights ago. I was talking about this whole thing and she drew this picture and that's that's Jesus and that's you on his lap. And his love for you is based on what he's done for you and who you are because of that, not on how good you can shoot. He wants you to shoot because he knows you have it in, in yourself to be an expert marksman because he's living in you. But it's his love, it's his gentleness, it's his kindness, it's his patience. Paul says the love of God leads us to repentance. The love of God constrains us. It's the love we have up front that causes us to grow to become increasingly good marksmen. In every situation we're in, we're to ask the question, what's the bullseye here, Lord? What, what, what does your love look like in this situation, in this situation? And, and we're to grow in that. But we do it not by cranking it out on our own, but by saying, Lord, love through me. Let your character be formed in me. Live life through me. Live life through me. And when you miss the mark, and you will, hear the Lord if you're hearing a military sergeant, that is the accuser, the accuser of the brethren, who brings shame, which is knots you up and causes you to shoot less effectively and maybe even give up altogether. Collapse that word, collapse that picture, TNT stuff, and, uh, and picture this face of Jesus Christ. He's your father, he's your friend, he's your groom. And he says, you know what, okay, we'll, we'll keep working on it. Just follow my lead, follow my lead. No, okay, you missed the mark, but at least you didn't miss it by a mile, like you did last week. You only missed it by half a mile this time. And you know and, 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 and follow him on that. Here's encouragement. Would you close your eyes to pray? Two questions here, as I wrap this up, two, two questions. Number one, I believe there are people here who have been under the legal religious bondage. And you've never learned what it is to live for free, to, be un- to have unconditional worth, to love people for free. You've got judgments full in your head. You've eaten from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And you don't know how to get free from it. And maybe you've tried to shoot the arrow, but that sergeant has been in your face. And all you hear is an angry voice. And maybe you just get angry at yourself. And maybe you've even given up. The Lord wants to, this morning, heal you and touch you. And I wanna start just by praying for you and then I'll invite you if you want to come up here and we'll have a prayer team that would be glad to pray with you after the service. But if you're here this morning and there are wounds like that, would you raise your hand? You need healing from the Lord. Anybody here, yeah, all over, wonderful. Keep your hands raised. I wanna just pray for, the, for this group. Praise God. You need healing, you need a touch. Maybe it's even hard for you to believe that Christ really has that attitude towards you, but he does, he does. Amen, wonderful. Wonderful. Okay, you can put your hands down. Are there those, anyone here today, who you've never surrendered your life to this loving Savior for the first time? You've never confessed that you're a sinner and that you can't do it on your own, and you've never asked him to come into your life to forgive you and start living life through you. If you're here this morning and that's your situation, would you raise your hand? Because I want to pray for you as well. Amen. Up here. Anybody else? Just raise it real high so I can see. You want to surrender your life to Jesus. Maybe you've been trying to do the religious thing on your own, but you don't have a genuine relationship that is there, in the back there, praise God. Anybody else? Just surrender your life to Christ. All right. Let me pray with you. First, for those who are wounded, Father, I pray in Jesus' name that your tender Holy Spirit would just invade their heart. I pray, God, that they could see that your goal for them is not to that they'd be filled with shame, but that they'd be filled with the full measure of your love. That they would incre- increasingly, that when they see their sin, it would just be a reminder of how high and how deep and how wide and the breadth of the love of God that surpasses all understanding. God, fill them with that love and heal them with that love. And Lord, put your arms around them and, 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 and reassure them that you'll, you'll guide that bow and you'll guide that arrow and you'll release it just on time and, and, and and, and they're going to get better at this. But you don't leverage eternity on that. Your love leads them to improve. Father, heal them, I pray in Jesus' name. For those who, who uh, raised your hands to receive Christ, would you pray this prayer after me? In fact, we'll all join you with it. It's a simple prayer, but it's what makes you a citizen of the kingdom of God and starts the growth. Pray with me out loud. The Bible says, Confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and you shall be saved. So pray this prayer. We'll pray with you. Lord Jesus, I confess that you are Lord, that you are Savior. And I confess that I'm a sinner and that I need you. I cannot do it on my own. And so I ask you, Lord Jesus, to forgive me. Have mercy on me. Come and live inside of me and change me, help me live for you the rest of my life. I surrender everything over to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Those who raise their hands for that, I want to welcome you to the kingdom. Wonderful.